0: Content on this production is for entertainment and informational purposes only. It is not medical advice, nor is it intended to substitute medical treatment or diagnosis. Seek medical help if you believe that you are suffering from a mental illness or are a threat to yourself or others. By using any or all of the information provided, you do so at your own risk. Any application of the material is at the listener's discretion and is his or her sole responsibility.
1: Last week, I shared with you that I was waiting on a friend at the VA Hospital, Veterans Affairs Hospital who was having a procedure done uh, on his bladder. As I waited there longer and longer for, for them to tell me that he was ready to be picked up uh, about an hour and a half past that time, a nurse called me and they said that they had decided that since to his uh, medical history, that even though his procedure was very well, everything turned out great they had decided to keep him overnight and i thought well that that's a good thing if that's what they think needs to be done then then i'm all for it Uh, then a doctor called me afterwards and said i asked my relation uh, to this gentleman and he said that he just even though i was listed as the emergency contact he did not know what he could share with me uh, in reference to this procedure so Uh, became very inquisitive then as to what actually was going on. Back when COVID began, uh, there was a gentleman that that goes to church with me, and he called me one day just out of the blue, and he wasn't the type to ever just call. And so when he called, he told me that he just wanted me to know that he was going to kill himself. And this is a guy who is a veteran that, uh, fought in the war, very strong man. Uh, his wife had passed away uh, several years prior and he actually uh, was hit by RPG in the war. And it's the only person that I've ever met that has a, a prosthetic ear. And I remember the first time that, that I saw him take off his prosthesis. Uh, because his ear itched, and I was just like, I, I didn't know what to think. It was it was just a very weird situation, and so then of course I had to inquire as to to what was going on, and and was uh, honored to hear his story and his bravery of of war. So when somebody tells you that they call, he called, and he told me that. He had been having a lot of depression, that he was lonely, uh, that he was would be driving places and he would get lost. And he was just tired of it. He had gone to the doctors and the doctors didn't seem to know what was going on. And he said, "I've decided to to kill myself. I, I've decided to to just end it. Things will be better that way." And in those situations, we have to be very careful of how we respond to individuals who are suicidal. And I said, well, well, what are you going to do? He said, well, I have my gun here. I'm going to, I just want you to know that I'm going to kill myself. And so I, I said to him, you know, you're already feeling alone. You're already feeling these, these depressive thoughts. I said, I, I love you and you're my friend and I, I don't want you to die alone. I said, so if you will, would you please wait to do it until I get there? And he said, you know, you've been a really good friend of me, so yes, I will wait until you get here. Now, I, I was about 20 minutes from his home and, and so I immediately left and, and went his way as quickly as possible. And I just prayed the whole way, don't let him do this until I get there. And I remember him telling me on the phone that I could come, but that I was not going to talk him out of it. And so as I got there, thankfully, he had not committed the act yet. And however, he was sitting there in his recliner with a revolver in his hand. And he said to me, he said, Brian, I, you know, I've been thinking about this, and I, I said I would wait till you get here, but he said, I just don't know that I can put you through the trauma of seeing me do this. And I said, well, you know, there are other options. There are other things that we can do. Now, if you've listened to my podcast for any period of time, you may recall uh, an episode that we did with Michael Brooks, who is the founder of We Are the 22 here in the state of Arkansas, which is a veteran suicide hotline where they, they will send out a team of veterans to assist those that are having suicidal thoughts or ideologies. And so I called Michael. And as I said, this was in the, the time of COVID and they weren't being allowed to respond to homes. But in working with Michael, I was able to talk this gentleman into going to the VA. Michael had called the VA, let them know what was going on. And so we were on our way to the hospital and I dropped him off. I made sure they knew who we were and why we were there. And they took him into the ER. About an hour later, he called me. He said, I need you to pick me up. I'm outside the ER. I said, What do you mean? He said, well, they told me that because I, I said that I wanted to kill myself and not that I was going to kill myself, and because they needed to keep beds open for COVID, that I did not qualify for a psych hold. Now, that infuriated me. I, I don't remember the last time I was that angry. So I went over to the VA, and I may or may not have caused a scene, But the end result was that he was committed and got treatment. In that time of anger, however, I met a couple of doctors who thanked me for being so passionate about this man's life and he being a veteran to get him help. Unfortunately, my friend, uh, it was found that he had a brain tumor. And that was the reason he was feeling the way that he did. And It was a very aggressive growing tumor. And unfortunately, about two weeks later, he passed away. Now, while that was a very difficult time, I met these couple of doctors who I then called upon about my friend who just had this procedure done to say, hey, look, you know, what's going on here? And they shared with me that while they were in the bladder doing this procedure, they found a very large tumor. And that while we are waiting for pathology, this is a tumor that they know that there's no way that it's not cancer, and they believe that it is an aggressive growing cancer. So I was able then to go and share with his elderly wife, who has a lot of medical issues and is hard of hearing, and give her the news in person in a way that she could have some comfort and some peace and a time to ask any questions that she may have. My friend now is, is getting treatment for this aggressive cancer and, uh, hopefully they'll be able to get it all. They're going to go back in and try to remove most of it. But I said all of that to say this in times of difficulty, in times of frustration, in times of anger, A lot of times we find hope and we find reassurance. If we really stop and think about what is going on, we can develop relationships that sometime down the road we need. Now, while the situation then looked very bad and looked like a way that uh, there was no hope, there was a plan and there was a purpose for that situation that set me in a position that I was able to help in another way to someone else who was hurting. There is always going to be a time where these bad experiences play for good. And you may say, well, Brian, you don't understand my situation. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what I'm dealing with. And that is true. But I have found through my life that these negative situations, these problems, these trials, these these tribulations eventually will turn to our good if we keep an open mind and positivity about the things that we are dealing with. And so today I want to encourage you, whatever you may be going through, however you feel, it's okay to feel that way. Just don't unpack and live there. Experience it. Feel the emotions. And realize that one day you're going to be able to look back and say, yes, that was bad. But had that not happened, I would not be where I'm at today. I would not be experiencing the joy and the happiness and the fulfillment of life that I'm feeling today. So friend, whatever you may be going through, whatever may feel like you can't get through it, you're going to get through it if you will simply keep a positive attitude and look for the good. Hey everybody, Doc Bryan here and welcome to Doc Talks, where we talk about people's troubles, trials, tribulations, and hopefully triumphs in life. Uh, Today, I have with me a guest, Amber Sheppetto, who I discovered on TikTok, telling her story as a foster care survivor. Amber, I appreciate you being here with us today.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Of course. So just really kind of jumping into it, how did you end up in foster care originally?
0: So originally, when I was very young, my biological mother... I was taken from her when I was around two, and the woman that I ended up with who adopted me by the time I was three was actually my adoptive grandmother. She had adopted my biological mom when my biological mom was around seven, so I knew her from the time I was a baby. She watched me a lot while my mom would go out and party. And then, you know, by two, the state stepped in and said, obviously, you cannot care for this child in the way she needs to be cared for. So she signed away her rights to my adoptive grandmother, who I ended up calling mom because she raised me. I know it's a little confusing, but
1: oh, that's fine. So the grandmother that raised you was not any biological relation. It was an adoptive to your mother. Yes. Did she have any type of relation to your mother other than just adopting your mom?
0: Not that I was aware of. I think that she just knew her from being adopted by her at such a young age.
1: Do you remember? I mean, it's it's a really young age to remember, but do you remember that transition at all? What that was like?
0: I do. I actually, even though I was so young, I just due to the nature of my living circumstances, I do have some very early memories of what it was like to live with my biological mom. And then I do remember the day that I was taken out of her care.
1: From your biological mother. Yes. Can you kind of share with us what that was like, what that memory is?
0: So the memory is a little spotty just because I was so young, but I do remember kind of the caseworker kneeling down to my level inside my biological mother's home and just saying that we were going to go on a car ride or something like that. And I remember being put in a car seat in the caseworker's car. And I was very scared because obviously I didn't know this woman and I can remember crying. And then after that, that's pretty much the bulk of the memory.
1: And so then going to what then you saw as a grandmother, was there any other children in the home or was it just you, you and her?
0: There were other children. So growing up, I actually had like seven um, siblings, some adopted, some were fosters. And then there were constantly foster kids coming in and out of the home as well, because my mother was still an active foster parent.
1: Okay. So it wasn't just that... You were accepted, well, at least in Arkansas law, the way we would look at that is that you were placed with your adoptive grandmother under kinship placement, but then the adoptive grandmother was also an active foster parent. Yes. Okay. So uh, how many kids do you remember were, were in the home when you moved in?
0: So consistently, I grew up with the same seven siblings from the time I was very young. When I first came into the home, they weren't all there because there were some that were younger than me that eventually came a few years later. You know, once I reached like the age of like five, I had the same seven siblings my entire life, some older, some younger.
1: Okay, so it was pretty stable once you were five years old.
0: And then every so often we'd get a, you know, a young foster kid that was like an emergency placement that we would have for a few weeks to maybe a couple of months.
1: Sure. So what was life like growing up in in that home?
0: It was pretty strict. So, you know, we went to church three times a week. Um, my mother was a very Christian woman. She very much disciplined in like um, like a physical manner. So if we did something we weren't supposed to, she spanked us a lot. It was like, go pick a switch off the tree type thing. You know, if you bit your sibling, I, I remember a day where I bit my brother and my mom bit me on my arm to kind of like teach me a lesson.
1: My mother did the same exact thing to me so maybe it's a southern thing
0: yeah and my mother was a southern woman so even though I was raised in Illinois the mom that raised me was born and raised in Kentucky so she was very southern very old-fashioned we everything was yes ma'am no ma'am like you were not allowed to just say yeah or no just stuff like that we weren't allowed to watch a lot of tv or play video games we never had internet or a computer in the house once that became a thing later. Yeah, so just stuff, just very strict. We weren't allowed to use the phone. I never had a single sleepover my entire life. Like I wasn't allowed to go to them or host them.
1: So the the lack of technology, if you will, was that due to a religious kind of strictness or was that more of a income issue where you just didn't have the funds to have those things?
0: I think it was more of a strictness because the last couple of years that I did live in the home, we did get a computer, but it was never hooked up to internet access. Like you could play the basic games that came on a computer. And then we eventually did get like a PlayStation and like the original Nintendo, but our time on those were very limited to like 30 minutes a day. So I think it was just more of like a strictness thing.
1: Got you. Now you have mentioned the, the grandmother that you now call mom or did at that time call mom. Was there a father figure in the picture at all?
0: No. So, so my mom that raised me, if I ever refer to my biological mother, I will call her Cindy just because she didn't raise me. So when I say my mom, the woman that adopted me. So my mom actually was born in 1928. And at 16 years old, she married her husband, Floyd. And he unfortunately passed away when they were in their, I think they were in like their forties, like maybe mid to late forties. He died of like a high cholesterol issue, I guess. So I never met him and she never dated or remarried after he passed.
1: So she was, she was quite older when she was raising you. Yes. As time transpired here, moving into teenage years, did you ever feel kind of somewhat ostracized from your friends at school because you couldn't do certain things?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. My friends teased me all the time about how I wasn't allowed to go to sleepovers or, you know, do a lot of the things that kids my age were doing, just go to the mall and walk around. As I got older, there were times, you know, where I would sneak to the mall with my friends and go walk around anyway, even though I wasn't allowed to do those things. Yeah. I was definitely, you know, felt a little ostracized from my friends.
1: To use a very cliche ish therapy question, when you did for lack of a better word, rebel, and go to the mall. How did that make you feel in those moments?
0: I was always a little nervous or scared um, that I was going to get caught because I kind of felt like my mom had eyes everywhere because we did live in a very small town that my mom had lived in since she got married. So she knew everyone who lived there. I had a lot of family that lived in town. So if I did anything, my mom knew about it. But once I did get home, if she didn't know I'd gone and I, you know, kind of got away with it, I guess in like a teenage fashion, I was just kind of like, ha like I did something that I wasn't supposed to and you didn't find out about it type thing.
1: Right. But while you were while you were there, there was a aspect of, oh, no, she might find out instead of here I am. Look at me. I'm doing whatever I want to do.
0: Abs- yeah, absolutely.
1: OK, which speaks a little bit to an attachment style. To the, to the parent there that there is a legitimate fear of, of what might happen if uh, she were to find out. Uh, was there ever a point in, your, in time in your childhood growing up in that home where you felt like that the discipline was extreme borderline abuse?
0: Extreme, yes. Abuse is kind of, I don't know, it's difficult for me. To kind of label it as abuse, because I know that some may see it in that way. But for me, it was just how I was raised. So it was normal. So I don't think that I ever thought at any point it was at a level of like physical abuse or even like mental or emotional abuse. It was just kind of how I was disciplined and raised.
1: So now looking back as an adult, would you consider it to be abuse?
0: Some things, yes. I think that there was a lot of aspect where she just liked to have control. It was more about control than it was care. Like she wasn't doing the things that she was doing and how strict she was because she cared and wanted to keep us safe. It was more about control of the situation and her kids.
1: Right. And she didn't have biological children.
0: She had two, but they were in their forties or so whenever I was young because she had them when she was 18 and 19 years old.
1: Got you. So what were family functions like?
0: huge just because in her time of fostering from young to old, she fostered well over 200 kids. Not that that many stayed in contact with her and adopted something like, I think it was like 15 in her life. So family functions were huge between all the kids that she adopted and raised. And they went out and had their own families, but always came back for holidays. And then her biological sons and their kids and wives and Stuff like that. So.
1: so growing up at these huge family gatherings, uh, did it ever make you kind of feel uncomfortable like you weren't supposed to be there? Um,
0: no, I don't think I ever felt uncomfortable. I felt confused at times just because like <laughs> I don't it's it's weird to say that it confused me because so her biological sons, I grew up calling uncle Kevin and David. But technically, if she adopted me, they were my brothers. And so it was kind of like every person in my family kind of had two roles or labels that they technically could have.
1: Gotcha. So it was a true Kentucky-style family build in in Illinois. Yeah. Yeah. You have brother-uncles and, and that sort of thing.
0: But no blood, no biological. Right. right.
1: Yeah. That's over in the Virginia areas where that, right. that kind of stuff starts happening.
0: <laughs> no offense to family that lives in Virginia.
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> As your story progresses on, one day you are encountered by the police. Is that correct? So let's start there. What happened at that time? How old were you when that took place?
0: So I was 14, about 14 and a half. And I had just gotten home from summer camp the day before because I went to the same summer camp for about four or five years. It was a Christian summer camp and I was there for a week. And I'd gotten home on Sunday, the 8th, July 8th of 2007. And the next morning, um, July 9th, my mom said that she had an appointment to go to and some errands to run. And that um, I was in charge of, you know, watching the kids, making sure everybody stayed home, nobody went anywhere, just take care of them. And so around 12:30, one o'clock, I thought it was weird that my mom hadn't called because if she was going to be gone all day, typically at some point in the afternoon she would call and check in just to make sure everybody's being good. And she didn't do that. But being a 14-year-old, I was like, whatever, kind of brushed it off real quick and went to play in the basement with a couple of my siblings, even though we were not allowed to play in the basement. We decided to go down there because we were home alone. And I hear the back door slam around. It was sometime between 2 and 2:30, 2 and I was like, "Oh crap, Mom is home because the back door is the main door we used in and out of the house. And so I told my siblings to get all the stuff picked up that we had dragged out, and I would race up the stairs and try to distract Mom long enough for them to get back up the stairs, and so we didn't get in trouble. So I run up the stairs and then you come down a small hallway, and then at the end of the hallway to your right, you face the kitchen, and the back door comes into the kitchen. I rounded that corner and I went to be like, hey, mom, and paused because in front of me was a police officer. And I was very confused. Um, and they asked me if I was Amber Shepard. And I said that yes, I was. And they said I needed to come with them. And I kept asking them, like, why they were taking me, where they were taking me. And they wouldn't give me any answers. They put me in handcuffs and put me in a police car. And we started driving. And again, the whole time we're driving, I'm asking, where are we going? What's happening? And I even thought that maybe they were arresting me because about a week or two prior, I had threatened one of the girls in my class. We, she would have been in my eighth grade class at the end of summer that I was going to kind of like beat her up because she was always teasing me and I was kind of over it. So on my space, I kind of sent her a little threat like, when school starts back up, you better watch out because I'm tired of this, blah, blah, blah. So I thought maybe that's what it was about. And I even said, if this was about what I said to the girl on MySpace, like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. And the cop was like, what do you mean what you said on MySpace? So then right there, I was like, okay, well, that's not what this is about. And so we drove for a little bit longer and we finally got to the back of this building where they got me out of the car and walked me inside. And once we were inside, I noticed that it was a family services building. And they walked me to an office and sat me down and took the cuffs off me, left. I sat in the room for just a couple minutes before the caseworker came in and kind of explained to me what was going on, that my mom had spent the day relinquishing her rights and signing me back over to the state, pretty much like unadopting me.
1: So I guess the part that really baffles me about this whole thing is why did the police come and get you? why did they handcuff you? Why was it not like a family service worker that came to pick you up? Do you know why it transpired that way?
0: I do now. I didn't get those answers until earlier this year. Growing up, after I re-entered the system as a young teenager, um, I kind of just told myself that, you know, my mom was an elderly woman. She had cancer. Um, she knew that she was probably going to die from it. And she wanted to make sure that I was going to be okay, I was going to be safe. If I was going to end up back in the foster system, she wanted to know where I was going while she was still alive. Obviously, as I got older and started looking at it through the eyes of an adult, I was like, her actions don't make sense if it was out of care and love and wanting to make sure I was safe. And so I called the Vermilion County Sheriff's Office earlier this year and asked if they still had the copy of the report that would have been filed that day. And they did, and they sent it to me. And there was all kinds of stuff in it that it was lies. And I don't pretend to have been a perfect child at that age. Um, I was pretty much your typical teenager. You know, I stayed out too late and ran around with my friends and I talked back and all this stuff. But there were things in it like I stole her credit card and I added email service to her phone and racked up a really high bill. And I stole cash from her room and snuck boys into the house and just all of these things that I did not do. So it was hard for me to process when I first found out about it, when I first got that police report, because I just, I didn't understand why she would say all of those things. There were also other kids around my age in that home who could have been a part of that and could have done it. But as far as me being involved, I was not.
1: And how old were you? Did you say you were 14?
0: Yeah, I was 14. Did
1: you come to find at any point in time that maybe she was suffering from dementia or pseudodementia at the time that she was accusing you of those things?
0: It's hard to say. I don't think so. That was the last day I saw her or personally interacted with her Um, would have been when the caseworker took me back to the house to get my belongings. But I did call her about a month and a half after once I was put in my first foster placement because I lived in a group home immediately after until they found my first placement for me. And I called her and I said, Hey, mom, it's me. I just wanted to let you know that like, I'm safe. I'm okay. How are you? And her exact words were, I'm fine. Don't call here again, and hung up on me. And that was the very last time I've ever talked to her. So I would say no, she wasn't suffering from any kind of like dementia or pseudo dementia, but I can't say for sure.
1: So when you went back to the home to get your stuff, what transpired then? I I assume she was not at, at the home at that time?
0: She was home. Yes. So we pulled in the driveway and the whole way there in the caseworker's car. I'm just like thinking about what am I going to say to her to just kind of one, figure out what's going on and two, try to get her to not do this. So I walked in the back door and I tripped over a trash bag of my stuff because she had had all of my siblings go up in my room and throw all my stuff in trash bags and just leave it at the back door but I noticed that my childhood stuffed rabbit that I'd had since I was a little kid was not in there. So I ran up the stairs to my bedroom to see if he was on my bed where I had left him and he wasn't. And so I come back downstairs and she yells at me and said that I had no reason to go running around her house. I had no rights to be up in that room. Like she had my siblings pack my things so that I could just get my things and go. And I just kind of looked at her and I was like, mom, why are you doing this? Like, I don't even understand what's going on. And she just said, Amber, just go. And so... That's just, I didn't have any fight left in me. So I just said, fine. And I turned around and I remember walking through the room between the living room where she was and the kitchen, which is where I needed to go out the back door was our playroom. And I, there was like an armor to my right. And I remember walking past it and just like hitting it as hard as I could out of anger and then going outside and putting my stuff in the caseworker's car. And my brother ran out the door and he said, Amber, mom said to tell you she loves you. And so I ran back towards him and I was like, tell her I love her too. And then he had left the door open. So I yelled as loud as I could, mom, I love you too. Just kind of like as a, I guess like a last ditch effort to change her mind. But I don't know if she actually told him to come say that. I've always thought that maybe he just told me that to make me feel better because he could see how heartbroken I was in that moment.
1: Sure. My son is adopted. Uh, We've had him since he was one year and three days and he's now six and I can't imagine anything that he could do that would make me want to take him back. You know, it, it just is, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around how somebody who has had a child since they were three years old, would at 14 years old, just give them up. And, and essentially, that's exactly what she did. She just decided that, now, whether or not she believed that you had done those things is one thing. But, you know, as a mother, I kind of think I would have expected her to at least ask you about those things. Right. You know, to give you some sort of indication that there was an issue. Was there ever anything that was remotely communicated that there might be a problem?
0: not in, in the instance, like what was in the police report. Like I said, I, I was a rebellious teenager. I may have been hard to deal with at times just between, you know, talking back and not doing my chores just because I had been raised in such a strict manner that when I was coming into like my adolescent years, I was kind of just like over it. Like I'm tired of not being able to hang out with my friends and do normal kids stuff. I hate that, sometimes it feels like maybe I took advantage of her getting weaker from being elderly and being sick and kind of just decided to do whatever I wanted to do at times. And maybe she was just hurt by that. And I, I don't know, I go back and forth on it all the time. I discuss it with my therapist. I replay moments of my childhood over and over in my head, just trying to figure out like what it is that I did on what day that drove her to, Say that I did things that I didn't do and then send me back to the system in such a cruel manner because Mm. I understand having to put me back in the system if she needed to. Um, If she was dying and I was too much for her to handle, but it could have been a a sit down conversation with a caseworker. It didn't have to be uh, bombarding me with police officers and handcuffs and not giving me any information at all.
1: Right. But at the end of the day, you are the child. I mean, it would tend to lead that maybe she had something going on, maybe like borderline personality disorder, where she needed to have the last word and the final control to to put you out. But I can only assume um, that you suffer from some type of attachment disorder. And your therapist has probably said something to the effect of you have trouble living in the present.
0: That's what she says my biggest problem is, is yeah. that I have a heart thing in the present. I'm either like, Looking back at the past to like try to calm myself or like figure out where things went wrong, or I'm fearful of the future and I'm trying to predict everything that's going to happen before it happens.
1: And, and you're just waiting for it to fail. Yeah. Yeah. And and so life living like that is will cause other things. You know, major depressive disorders, anxiety. I can assume you probably have a CPTSD diagnosis along with an attachment disorder. People in those circumstances sometimes become a little obsessive compulsive and not traditional of everything has to be clean and everything has to be in set order, but overly compulsive about controlling certain situations in that you want to try to make it become the best outcome, but you might, going out on a limb here. You might do a lot of self-sabotage as well.
0: Yes, especially in my like teenage years after everything happened. God bless the family that I ended up with because I put them through hell um, trying to you know raise me or fix me, if that's a term you want to use.
1: Mm. I, I don't like to use the term fixed. I, I would say unpack it, unpack yeah. it and fold it nicely and store it away but a lot of times when we don't do that that's where we get these attachment disorders in that we can't live in the present because we're so focused on the past and the shoulda coulda wouldas all of that that comes comes with that so kind of backtracking here a little bit your brother comes out says mom loves you you have this I, i'm going to assume a last ditch effort to get your mom come out and say i'm sorry i shouldn't have done this i do love you please come back which didn't happen. So then you're back in the caseworker's car. Are you then completely crushed or are you still looking that there might be some thread of hope somewhere?
0: It's hard for me to pinpoint that moment. Like I'm very in tuned with like my emotions and I can feel emotions that I felt in my childhood at certain points, but I don't really remember being back in the caseworker's car. Um, the next thing I remember was being at the emergency placement that I stayed at that night before he took me to the group home the next day. Um, I remember the interaction with those foster parents, but I don't remember the car ride getting to that house.
1: Right. And it it may have been that it was such such a traumatic thing to happen to you that your brain just put it away, not for you to recall. And it's still in there and it could be retrieved. Whether we would want to retrieve that or not, it it remains to be unseen, but our brain has a unique way of, of, I'll use air quotes, forgetting certain trauma. And so now you're into an emergency shelter and then transition to a group home. How long were you in the group home?
0: It was about a month to a month and a half because I got there on the 10th, on July 10th, and I would have I got to my first foster placement on August 13th of that same year. So, yeah, it was just a little over a month.
1: Okay. And then you move in with this foster family uh, now at the age of 14. Yes. And do you remember moving in? Do you remember anything about that day?
0: Um, About the foster family that I, my first placement? Yes. Um, I remember the day we moved in. It was just kind of getting to know the family. I met all the kids, um, learned that I would be sharing a room with the the teenage girl of the house. It was all biological kids. They had three biological children. That's about all I remember of that specific day.
1: Mm -hmm. And so how did that placement work out?
0: That was the worst placement I had. The mother of that home was very mentally and emotionally abusive towards me. She outcasted me in the home and kind of turned her kids on me. So they all like just treated me like crap and just told me how worthless and pointless I was and that my life was not going to amount to anything and just all kinds of cruel behavior.
1: You know, I have worked in, in foster care as a, as a CASA court appointed special advocate for neglected and abused children Mm -hmm. for over the last 12 years. And I have found that sometimes the the trauma that the child goes through that brings them out of their biological home is not as bad as the trauma that they are finding in these foster placements. And I know in the state of Arkansas at least we need more we need more foster families and the screening for that is is very intense but once you're approved they just bring kids in. I mean, it's not you know, there's not really any type of uh, advocate except for the casa. and the casa isn't, you know, there's not always a casa appointed to a case or you know that that follows up with a case. And so we get into these situations where there is a uh, a mental and emotional abuse that is happening that that far outweighs the original reason for for the child leaving the home. How long were you with that foster family?
0: I was with them for nine months before I requested to my caseworker that he please move me.
1: Okay, so it was your request to leave. It wasn't the family's request.
0: Well, the day that I made the request to him, he he was paying me a visit anyway. So I decided that that's when I was going to talk to him. And he said, I'm actually here today because the mother of this home has requested that I find a new placement for you. So it was kind of, I guess, like a mutual thing. Like I didn't want to be with her and she didn't want me there. So,
1: yeah. Do you have any speculation as to why you were treated that way there?
0: She always said that it was because, because I remember one day that I asked her why she was so mean to me. And she said, I'm not mean to you. You just have no efforts of trying to fit in with this family or blend into this family. You don't want to go out for things in school. Like you don't want to play sports, sports. You don't want to get up and help us with the family paper route at 4 a.m. Like just all this stuff. So I guess she just didn't feel that I was trying to fit in with the family. But at the same time, I'd also gone through a very horribly traumatic experience and my life was turned upside down. And I was trying to cope with that while also going through adolescence while also trying to live with a new family. So kind
1: of sounds like she had the idea of, of fostering backwards. I mean, the child's not there to conform to you you are there to give the child stability in whatever means that that they need and so now we have this trauma of your of your mother signing over her rights and now we have on top of that the trauma of going into this foster family that is mentally and verbally abu- abusive to you uh, not just the the parent but the children as well So you request to be moved. You find out that the mom had requested for you to be moved. And so what happened next?
0: I was taken to my next foster placement. This was March of 2009. I was in eighth grade. So I was halfway through my eighth grade year. And or a little over half. And I went to a town that was a couple hours away to finish out my eighth grade year. And it was my understanding that that was the family that that was it. Like, I wasn't going anywhere. We were even talking about plans for the next year of when I was going to be a freshman, because I was a year older than everybody in my class. I was 15 in eighth grade by that point. So the next year I was like talking about driver's ed and getting my first cell phone and, you know, the foster family discussed those things with me. So it was really a shock when I found out in the end of April that I was going to be moving again once I graduated eighth grade in May.
1: OK, so that moves us now to a third foster placement. Do you know why the second foster placement, why they had all of these hopes and ambitions and for you and then all of a sudden the, the plan was changed?
0: Because the third family that I would end up staying with requested me. So I actually, the first foster home that I was abused in, while I was there, I met this family. It was the foster mom's sister and her husband and their kids. Um, And they came over for a cookout one day and I'd met them and we, you know, we'd go to their house sometimes or they'd come to the house and I'd get to play with their kids um, and I guess something about me really resonated with them because when they found out that that first foster mom gave, like asked for me to be moved and I had asked to be moved, they requested me. So I went and lived with them.
1: Okay. And then that was your final Foster placement. Yes. Did they end up adopting you or did you age out?
0: No, nope, they adopted me. Um, I w- it was right before my 18th birthday because it took about a year and a half between guardianship and, you know, the court processes. So on September 1st of 2010, when I was 17 years old, the Todd family adopted me.
1: And so at that moment that you were adopted, you're in the courthouse, I assume, The judge makes that order. Do you remember what kind of emotion you had that day?
0: I was kind of relieved just because it was like, it's over. But at the same time, I was also very scared because what if they decide one day that I'm too much for them? And they do, because obviously adoptions could be undone. We've learned that now. So I kind of just walked on eggshells my entire childhood and beyond because I was just scared of them getting rid of me.
1: Yeah. Uh, Was there any any type of uh, worry or concern that because of the relation to the first foster family that they might become verbally and emotionally abusive?
0: No, because when I first started to live with them, I said, well, how does she feel about this? Like, does she know I'm here? I was told that, yes, she does know you were here and she's not happy about it. But you are our child now and you come first. So
1: and that must have been reassuring and comforting at that point.
0: Yeah, because it was it was uh what's so special about me that you're willing to, you know, jeopardize or end the relationship with your own biological sister. Just take me in and give me a home. It was weird, but it was also reassuring.
1: Maybe they didn't want to have that relationship with their. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, who knows? Because I can only assume if they were verbally and emotionally abusive to you that that, they would also be that way towards anybody else in the family that didn't you know, do exactly what they thought they should do. Right. So you're adopted now, but you are still a little concerned about, you know, this can be undone. You're 17. So you only got really a year left. How did, how did life begin there?
0: Um. So I was, what I have been a sophomore at that point if I was 17? Yeah. So I still had like a year and a half left in high school. It was great. Um, I had my mental and emotional battles um, just from mental health things. I was not easy to deal with. I was just very angry from the time I came to live with them. So I kind of just, you know, I started petty little fights and I screamed and slammed doors a lot. So, I mean, I was very difficult to deal with just because I was so confused and scared and angry. And but they handled it very well got me through high school. I got into a little trouble after high school, well, near the end of my senior year. And like for the first year after I was done in high school, because that was when I got my first apartment and was really like set out on my own and like to go take care of myself now. But I still had a lot of like unhealed stuff and trying to heal it in the wrong way, got me into some trouble.
1: Yeah, we we do kind of try to fill that void with other things that, that isn't always legal or ethical. Right. So, you know, coming through all of this, what would your suggestion be to foster kids that are in the system that may be dealing with emotional or physical abuse or verbal abuse in a home or the uncertainty of being in foster care? What would your what would your words to those kids be?
0: that I know you feel scared. And I know that you feel alone and like nobody in the world has your back. And I know that it feels like everyone around you is making decisions about your life without asking you about any of it. And it makes everything feel out of control. But there is going to come a time where it's not like that anymore, whether it's You find your forever family and you finally get your happy ending, even though it's probably not going to be easy once you're there either. But even on the other side of foster care, once you're out of it, you have a world of opportunity and possibilities and it does get better. So I know that life seems really dark right now, but it gets better. I promise you.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I I think that a lot of times uh, I had a kid tell me once they said, you know, I was taking, taken away from my parents, and they used the term, I'm just a project baby. And that term just really broke my heart. But I, I think where we lack in a lot of ways is we're not encouraging these kids to know that that just because of their circumstance, their, their circumstance does not define who they are. And they have just as much opportunity as anyone else who may not have been in that that situation and you know unfortunately we have adults that will tell kids things like that i I know that this child didn't come up with the term project baby without hearing it from an adult you know Uh, and and so it really just bothers me that that there's such a need but there really is no way to regulate what happens in the home to make sure that the child is not being abused. Uh, because I've also seen uh, instances where the child is being abused in the home, but the child is so afraid of their foster parents that they don't tell until it's too late or until you know, they are moved somewhere else. Did you ever feel like you couldn't be honest with your caseworker?
0: Yes. Um, When I was living in that first foster home, one, I didn't want to move again. I was very scared of the mom of that home because while she never got physical with me, I didn't know if it could ever get to that point. And there were days like if I just like tiptoed around her and just kind of like made myself invisible, she would leave me alone alone. So I didn't want to say something to my caseworker and then her twist it and make me sound like I'm lying and then him not do anything about it, like move me or make her stop. And then it would just get worse. I remember a day where she told me that if I was her only child, she would kill herself because I was so awful to deal with. So I don't know. It was very.
1: What a terrible thing to say, not just to a child, but to anybody. Right. If I followed the timeline correct, you're about. 28, 29 years old now?
0: 29 in December. Yeah, okay. I'm 28.
1: So life after foster care, um, how did that affect your relationships as far as, I don't know if you're married, if you have kids, uh, how did that affect your relationships after, after coming out of foster care?
0: So I am married and I have a two and a half year old son and- It's hard. I do not let people close to me very easily. Like, I'm a very kind person, and I'm a very compassionate person, and I will help anybody and move mountains for anybody that I love. But I do not accept help from other people. Um, I'm very controlling of my surroundings and my environment. I read into every little detail a facial expression, a change in tone of voice. Like, and if I think you're upset with me, I start getting very, like, defensive and scared. And so that can be really hard on my husband sometimes cuz I feel like he doesn't know how to talk to me sometimes because I'm still I'm still healing from everything. I didn't start my healing journey from all of this until about a year and a half ago and kind of having to go back through it and relive it to do that healing has brought conflict and, you know, more fights than usual. But my husband is a trooper and he understands where it's all coming from and Tries to help me in the best way he can, but I do push people away from me.
1: Yeah, well, you know, one thing that I try to remind uh, others is that therapy, in and of itself, is traumatic. Yeah, because we're reopening these doors of of what happened and reliving these experiences. Uh, but one thing that that I really believe to be true is that the walls that we build around our heart to protect us are the same walls that are going to keep us from having true, authentic relationships. And, and I'm sure your therapist has has talked to you about, about that, that at some point in time, you've got to live in the present and you've got to let those walls come down. And once again, assuming that you probably feel like most everybody's out to get you some way or another or to use you in some way or another.
0: Yes, that's why I don't let people like do things for me because I just have this mindset of like, if you do something for me, then I owe you. Like, Mm -hmm. I just automatically feel like now I owe you something. And I don't like feeling like that. Because again, it makes me feel out of control. It makes me feel like you have some version of power over me. And I don't like that at all.
1: Right. I, I had an older gentleman tell me one time, he said, don't owe anybody anything, but leave everybody owing you something. And that when we look at things like that, that I mean, we really don't have the power over people because if you owe them something, then they weren't doing it for you. They were doing it for them. But when we have that power shift of of gratitude and charity that we have done something for someone not with the intent of receiving something back, that we are still in control of that emotion and that feeling. And so we leave people owing us things. And what that also does is it makes us feel like, whether it actually is or not, it makes us feel like we have this invisible support system that, hey, if I needed to call this favor in, well, they do owe me because I did this for them, but not in a selfish way, not not in a way that that we're holding it over their head if they don't want to help us, that sort of thing. So, owe no one nothing, but leave everybody owing you something. Another thing that I find myself saying a lot is don't trip over a log behind you. Your present is not defined by your past. Every day is a new day. If we continue to trip over that trauma behind us, then we're, we're just... It's like Groundhog Day. Every day is the same day, and we just live and go through the motions knowing exactly what's going to happen with minimal changes. And so we really got to learn to live today for today while still going to therapy and reliving our past. And that's very traumatic uh, for anyone, very traumatic. Now, would I be correct in saying that while you were very careful to not let anybody in That inner circle that you're not that way with your son?
0: I'm not like that with my son at all. So like a big thing about me is that I do not like physical affection of any kind. I don't want people to hug me. I don't want to, like, hold my husband's hand in public. Like, I'm just not affectionate at all, except with my son. Um, My son, I will, like, snuggle him and cuddle him and give him kisses, obviously, and stuff like that. Like, I have no issue with him climbing on top of me and to play and stuff. But as far as anyone else making any form of physical contact with me, I just don't want people to touch me at all.
1: Which is not uncommon at all. For for what you have been through, where that problem comes into play is having a partner that understands that that becomes difficult. But uh, in those cases, that's why it's so important for us to communicate those things. When I do marital counseling with people who are in this kind of situation, whether it be the husband or wife, say, well, they don't show me any affection, they don't do this, they don't do that, they don't do this, and I'll say, well, think back to when you were dating. Did it happen then? Well, no. Well, what makes you think that it's going to happen now? You know, we kind of put our best foot forward when we're dating and we're attracted to each other, but if it didn't happen then, then it's probably not going to happen now. But I do suspect that through time and and healing and therapy, that you will be able to be open to those sort of things. But even in those moments, our, our partners have to remember that even though we are married, consent is a very big thing for those of us who have been through that type of trauma. Whether it be that your husband say, hey, can I give you a hug before approaching you to just give you a hug? Uh, When he gives that power back to you, it's easier for you to accept that uh, act of affection. Is that a fair statement?
0: Yes. And there are times that he does walk up to me and he's like, can I give you a hug? And I've gotten better since I have started therapy because I've been working on it with my own therapist. Um, It's something that we discuss a lot because my husband's love language is physical touch. Like he just feels loved by being like me cuddling him on the couch or giving him a hug or giving him a kiss, stuff like that. And so... It was very, um, strainful on our relationship for a while. And, um, so I'm getting better at it. Um, he doesn't always have to ask me now before he approaches me to hug me or give me a kiss or anything, but a lot of the times he does just to be respectful and mindful of my boundaries.
1: Sure. And your, your love language is probably words of affirmation.
0: It's actually acts of service. Like, um, even though I don't like to let people do things for me, it's really weird. Like, (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> that that's what trauma does for us.
0: It doesn't make any sense. Like, I don't know.
1: Yeah. Well, well, let me ask you this question and it may be too personal. And if it is, then then we'll edit this part out. But does that consent also uh, need to be there when you're intimate with your husband or is that a completely different realm?
0: It depends on the day, I guess. I don't mm-hmm. know. <laughs> yeah.
1: I, I understand that because, uh, in these situations, sometimes it then leads into intimacy too, where, and uh, not only does there need to be consent, but sometimes the initiation of intimacy has to be done by the one who has the trauma, mm-hmm. in order for it to feel uh, safe. I guess that's a good word, and so that does then you know lead into a whole different realm of of issues of intimacy. Uh, when when it comes into the marriage, even to the point of where when it is the man who has had this trauma, there may be issues of performance that that just can't happen, and then that leads to a whole other issue with a man uh, not being able to do those things and the the lack of masculinity that it that it leaves on them, and so I, I think it's very important though for us to really communicate with our partners wholeheartedly and honestly about what we have been through and try to explain why we are the way that we are, the best that we understand. Because a lot of times in these situations, we don't even know why we're like this. I mean, we could suspect some things, but when it gets right down to the to the nitty gritty of things, why we are like this. And if there's not that open and honest conversation, then it will ultimately lead in marital failure. And and then there are some people that, you know, I'm just not putting up with it. You don't you don't love me if you push me away. You know, you don't love me if you don't give me a hug. You don't let lo- you know all of that kind of stuff uh leads into to greater things. So I, I'm glad to hear that that you do have a partner that that somewhat understands that and is and is working toward um, reconciliation there in your healing process. That's encouraging for me to hear, especially with you, because at this point, a a divorce would be very. I, I'm going to use the word fatal, but I don't mean that in a mortal way. But it would be very fatal to your healing process with your attachment disorder. So. What kind of things do you do to try to keep yourself moving forward other than therapy? Is there, uh, I know some people, they have a very rigorous schedule. They try to, I know you're a photographer, uh, so, so you probably try to keep a very tight schedule uh, in order to keep your mind from ruminating on certain things. What, what kind of is your routine?
0: So um I actually work uh, three jobs.
1: Oh wow. One
0: owning my photography business. Um I also serve part-time at a local restaurant in my town and I do real estate photography during the week for another company. Um, when I'm not doing that, I'm finding activities for my son and I to do together. I keep my house very clean um, because in the home that I was raised in before anything else could be done, the house had to be spotless. Like the house was always guest ready and that was the rule. So that's how I kind of live now. And I actually was bored last week and my mind started to wander. So I went out and dropped a couple hundred dollars to renovate my bathroom that I said I'm going to, (laughs) I'm Going to do for the last three years. And I make TikTok videos, anything to keep me busy. My therapist is always like, you can never just enjoy some free time and just sit and relax and be present with your thoughts. You have to like keep yourself moving and going. So,
1: has your therapist encouraged you to not keep your house so tidy?
0: She has encouraged me to like if you don't have anybody coming over and you have a small stack of dishes by the sink, you don't have to get up and clean those four or five dishes right now. Mm -hmm. Like they can tomorrow morning or you don't, you know, if you washed and dried the laundry, fold it tomorrow.
1: Yeah. Uh, Those, you know, the dishes will wait till tomorrow, you know, at our house uh, washing and drying clothes is, you know, a one day thing, but to be folded and put up is five to seven business days, right. You know, well, well, Amber, I'm, it's, it's wonderful to meet you and talk to you, and you truly are an overcomer and a survivor. and, and I'm proud of you for putting in the work and continuing to put in the work uh, to be in a, in a mentally healthy place. Um, so tell our listeners where they can find you, uh, what's your TikTok. Instagram, uh, what your contacts are there?
0: So I my larger following is on TikTok. That's where I do a lot of my advocating and um, awareness videos for the foster care system. It's where I share my story and my, um, Handle for TikTok is just at amber dot c H I A P E T T O. I do have Instagram under the same name, but that's where I just share like personal photos of my day of my son. If you want to see some really cute photos of a two and a half year old. And then other than that, I'm not really on Facebook or Twitter. I do have a Facebook, but I'm not on it a whole lot. And I don't have a Twitter. So
1: Gotcha. Uh, And we'll make sure to put all those links in the explanation of this this podcast. Of course, I'm Doc Bryan. You can find me at thedocbryan.com. All of my social media links are there at the bottom of that page. Doc Talks is a part of Be Frank Network. You can find all of our podcasts there at befranknetwork.com. Amber, once again, thank you for being with us here today and telling your incredible story.
0: Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
1: All right. Well, we will talk to you soon and have a great week. Goodbye.